Hello and welcome back to D&J's Epic Quest. My name is Justin, aka Soft Pillows, and this is this is Derek or Bird That Steals. How you been, dude? How's it going, man? <laughs> Said the same thing at the same time. You owe me a coke. Just kidding. Oh, mm. damn it! That's oh, gonna that's be a warm okay. one. Just yeah. Isn't warm coke like super bad or something like that? Not that it you know it's great either way, but. Thought I heard something about like hot coke being not safe to consume. Uh, I don't know. The only weird thing I know about coke is that like southern people put peanuts in it sometimes or something. They put peanuts in it? Maybe that's beer. I don't remember. It was something that I thought was weird that, you know, normal people like us from the north. I mean, I put olives in my beer. You're scratching your head right now, I'm sure. Um, Yeah, but I mean... I put olives in my beer. Would they find that weird? Maybe. I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah, I can't remember. For some reason, I thought it was Coke. I'm going to Google it quick. Yes, it is. Maybe it's not even a Southern thing. I don't know. But uh, it is a thing. That's interesting. I never would have put the two together. Something about the, the sweet from the pop and the salty from the peanuts. I don't know. I might have to try that. Just because I'm curious. You're gonna try it now, aren't you? Uh yeah, when I yeah, when I get around to drinking Coke, which is rare, rarely ever. I don't know that I'll try it. Uh it just doesn't sound that appetizing to me. I mean, Coke's full of sugar, so I mean it can't be can't be that much different than like, you know, like candy with nuts in it. Uh yeah, I don't know. I this is one of those things. Maybe we shouldn't knock it till we try it. But I think I we know. should do that for our last episode. Both drink uh, some Coke with some peanuts in it. Yeah, this is this is uh, the beginning of the episode. I didn't, I, I didn't even have that on my mind to talk about <laughs> before we started recording. It just, I don't even know why I can't. Oh, yeah, it was because you were like you and me <laughs> Coke, and then that just popped into my head. So random yeah, tangent I mean, for the I day. I guess that's uh, that's how it works, right? Yeah. How is uh unpacking process gone? Still chipping away. Yeah, slowly chipping away. I mean, there's a there's a fair amount of stuff, but yeah, we're slowly making you know hanging things back up, you know, finding spots for stuff, hooking in things, plugging in stuff. Yeah, it's just it's a little tedious because you know we're both working, just taking a little time. Yeah, it it takes time. You'll get yeah, there though. I'm not worried about it. What about you? What's been up? I see you've been doing some book swapping on Twitter. A little bit, yeah. This just happened to work out good, so. So do you have to, like, return the books, or? Nope. Just straight up trading books? Nope, it was, uh... Yep. So what'd you send them? The same book. Just, uh, like a different print. Oh, okay, I see. So, one of those things where, like, if I wanted the old school Daryl K. Sweet art cover Wheel of Time books, but all I have are the fucking gross monotone ones. But someone had those Daryl K. Sweet ones, but wanted the monotone ones. You essentially just swap them out. Yep. That's exactly. kind of cool. No, kind of. That is cool. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't something I went out searching for. Just uh, it happened to work out that way. Somebody else saw it and had an opportunity and. That's what it was. Yeah, hell yeah. What uh, 
What state were they in? Uh, New Jersey. That's pretty cool. I had a a brief stint where I was selling books on eBay, and I would sell them all. Oh yeah, know. around the world or just like United States? Yeah, I didn't sell anything to anything outside of the states. All the people that I bought was uh, within the United States. I kind of felt a little guilty about it, but at the end of the day, like capitalism, right? So my secret was is that Barnes and Noble still sold the uh, Daryl K. Sweet paperback version of Towers of Midnight. So every paycheck I would buy like two or three of them for like $10. And then on eBay, I'd sell it for 30 <laughs> Hey. But yeah, that lasted for like maybe six months. And then I'm, I'm probably the reason why Barnes & Noble doesn't have any copies of them anymore. I probably sold maybe about, I don't know. 15 to 20 of those books holy yeah. cow yeah and along with uh you know memory of light i ended up having three copies of um those in paperback and i sold the other two for 50 dollars each wow that's a pretty nice uh pretty nice profit margin there yeah they're uh my partner makes fun of me all the time for it but you know those those covers are are worth some something. I mean, they're not in print anymore, so I want to keep them looking as good as long as possible. Yeah, I I definitely like yeah some of that artwork. It almost looks kind of cheesy, but I like it. It fits though for some reason. It just like just something about it. I don't yeah. know. Just just kind of able to kind of make up your own story in your head as far as what's going on. Right. Right. Speaking of stories, should we uh, get into episode 23 of chapter 22 of Gardens of the Moon here? Sure. This one was good. I felt like last chapter was kind of the rise in tension, you know, kind of like how all stories have like a, a rise in tension and then eventually a fall. I was really expecting like this chapter to be that fall, but, um, and, You'll see as we go through this chapter, but I definitely feel like this was kind of the peak, so to speak. But I thought that last time, so maybe I might be wrong. I guess it all depends on the chapter we read next. Yeah, it's, yeah, I don't know. I'm not really sure what to expect next in the next chapter, but I guess we'll find out here shortly. I feel like there's a lot of unexpected things in this chapter. Yeah, I think so. I totally agree. Cool. Well, uh. Want to start her off? Start us off. Uh, do you, you want to take the epigraph? I've, I'll be starting off with a pretty long section. So if you want to take the epigraph, maybe it kind of breaks it up a little bit. Yeah, I can do that. Let me just uh, go back to the beginning of this chapter here. <laughs> ah, it's all good. All right, ravens, great ravens, your damning calls to deride. History sweeping beneath your blackened wings. Shatter the day, O flags of night. Rend with shadows this innocent light. Ravens, great ravens, your drumming clouds arrive. Swooped sudden sheer, hissing travails from no place to the other. Shatter the day, O flags of night. Rend with shadows this innocent light. Ravens, great ravens, your beaks clatter open. Disgorging the sweat 
of straining dismay, the clack of bones promised to stay. I've seen the sheen of your eyes, the laughter that rhymes, the living. You're passing but an illusion. We stop, we stare, we curse your cold wings. In knowing your flight's path, wheeling you around us, again, oh, forever again. It was a pretty long one. It was a long one, I think. I think probably the longest I was the longest one we've had. I was just going to say that. Took the words right out of me. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, it's, it's okay. It's just now I owe you a Coke. Perfect. No peanuts, please. <laughs> Sounds good, man. All right. Well, I will start us off here for this chapter. Raced fought off two of the Black Dragons. The other two circled overhead, and Solana Redwings fled over the hill. She was hurt badly, and Race knew it. Her power bleeding out from the wounds sustained in battle. Race, ravaged as he was, muttered, and now she will die. All that kept him going was the power of his own warren. He was close to his finest. Once it was back in his hands, it would rejuvenate his body. The city lay beyond one more hill. The battle that had taken the place was devastating. Everything was burned, incinerated. He had thrown dirt in the cloud, dirt and clouds into the sky to blind the dragons, then set the air in their path on fire. All this had pleased him. He felt like he was living again. Though even as he walked, the havoc continued. He snapped his head and felled a bridge spanning a river, a guardhouse that he obliterated only because he could, and he didn't need the distraction as he continued to fight with dragons. A man rode a horse out of the city, and he destroyed both because they simply annoyed him. As he crested the hill, Solana disappeared. As he crested the hill, Solana disappeared over. He gathered his power, anticipating an attack, but nothing happened. The two circled overhead, and there was also a great raven. He looked across the valley and saw her waiting, bleeding, dying. He saw the city behind, and it was much, much larger than even the great Jaghut cities of old. He called out to the red dragon, Solana, Elient, I give you your life. Flee now, I show mercy only once. She did not move and did not reply. As Raced approached, he found her worn gone. Surrender then. Suddenly the city disappeared. He recognized this as an elder vision, a vision before Jaghut existed. He wondered who brought him here. It was Krupp. It's always fucking Krupp. He tells Race he looks like shit and the ears have not been kind to him. Race is like, who the fuck are you? Are you here to submit to me and be my first acolyte? Krupp says he's got it wrong. He bows to no man, Jaghut or God. That's how it goes these days. As mighty as you are, here you are insignificant in my dream. Ray says he's played this game before and unleashes some magic at Krupp. Krupp simply replies, rude. Race doesn't understand, and he hears a noise behind him. He turns around in time to take a sword through the shoulder, and it literally rips him to pieces. As he looked up, he saw Talan Imus. Krupp says he's clanless, unbound, and beyond binding, but the ancient call commands him still. Onos Tulin, sword of the first empire. Ono says Krupp has strange dreams. Krupp says he's full of surprises and sometimes even surprises himself. Ono says he senses a bone caster had part in this. Krupp says yes, and he thinks his name was Pran Cole 
of Kig Avon's clan. Ray says an IMS is not able to withstand him. Krupp replies that he should take a look in the mirror. He's all sorts of fucked up, but the IMS isn't alone in this. A figure appears. Ray says it reminds him of Hood, but he senses nothing of him. Ray says in this age, there is no one who can stop him. The figure calls him a fool and says in this age, a mortal can defeat him. It's the gods who are slaves now. Ray is surprised at this. The figure introduces themselves as Krull or Cruel. I don't know which way, but I like you. I think you brought up Cruel before, and I like that. The maker of paths. Do you recognize this title? Ray says this is impossible. He passed into the realms of chaos, no longer among the gods. Cruel tells Ray he has no choice and that things have changed. Onos is without equal and can destroy him, or he can join Cruel. Since they, are in the same, since they are one and the same, their times have passed and the gates of chaos await them both. Is he with or against? Race makes a third choice. Cruel says he's found another body. Krupp simply stammers, oh my. This was one of the ones that I was not expecting this. You know, I was not, I was not expecting for... Reyes to be pulled into Krupp's dream. Unexpected no. thing one. I, yeah. And I I know in our show notes here, I I could not remember. I thought it was Baruch that set the rider out that uh race just fucking obliterated, but uh you corrected me and it was Turban Ore. So uh yeah. Kind of a dick move on his part. Right. And when I was thinking I mean, I thought probably way too hard about that writer because it was such a short thing and i feel like most readers would have missed it um being that information is kind of played out over two chapters here but if you think about it turban or sent this writer and they were to deliver papers to the malazans and in pale of jerujistan's neutrality so my question is is was it luck that made Reyes kill the poor man? Or was it just simply him just being annoyed? Or was... You know what I mean? Like, I, I know that, like, Reyes probably is not influenced by any type of god, but... Or is he? You know? Like, I'm kind of playing off of that type of vibe. Um, You know, as far as, like, the luck thing, I feel like it was probably just that writer's own bad luck <laughs> you know just wrong spot wrong it depends time. on how you look at it true good for derugistan not yeah. good for this rider or his horse yeah i, I kind of feel worse for the horse than right anything. but good for reyes because you know he got some anger out he was annoyed he dealt with it true um you know like reading all this stuff i uh i kind of feel like raced is like Thanos like that's almost what I envisioned in my head as far as like a, a picture of him is like Thanos I don't know what you kind of envisioned but that was just what came to me um just a like a a nastier version right right I guess I always go to like anytime I envision something I always go to like cartoons that I watched in my past and I can't remember for the life of me what any of it is called um, but it just reminds me of like some type of 
like enemy that you would find in Mighty Max or you know one of those older like 90s cartoons you know just this big like hulking mass of muscle almost like almost like the juggernaut but with like tusks you know and no stupid like penis domed hat you know um just just like like fucked up disfigured face with tusks coming out of it but like built like the juggernaut from x-men you know i i guess that's just kind of where my mind is going with it uh yeah, you know, that's just what I was reading. You know, he's, you know, kind of like this all-powerful thing. And, you know, obviously he's braced his, you know, he's not snapping fingers. He's snapping necks. But <laughs> that's, a, yeah, that's a good way to put it. So, but. Yeah. Um, I guess Elder Vision. I feel like this is the first time Elder Vision has come up. Like, I just always thought that Krupp's dreams were dreams, you know, as at least that's what it appeared to be on the surface. But I think it's kind of cool that, you know, the author is coming back and actually like giving it a title to be an elder vision. So this is what I'm assuming Krupp has been having this whole time. Or, I mean, they could be separate incidences too, but... I don't think that's the case. Yeah, I like you said. I mean, I I just thought it was kind of like a dream too, and not so much a a vision or anything. But I mean, it, it just kind of is what it is, and uh, you know, it's fun to get like a like a reveal on something. You know, it's we had our interpretation, and not I guess that weren't we weren't right, but I wouldn't say we were wrong either. We just didn't know what was our interpretation that it was a dream right right. like we both thought it was a dream right yeah i gotcha okay i thought you were swaying for some reason no worries oh no worries um um you know just like this was a, a pretty long section but the uh just the description of how completely devastated everything was and it really painted a pretty apocalyptic picture and it, I don't know. The the whole thing was just really cool. I was, I was pretty, pretty focused. And, you know, when I was reading this, it was just, you know, it it really drew me in and and kept my attention. You know, sometimes you're reading things and you're just kind of like, all right, well, I don't really feel how, you know, or know how this is important. So I just kind of got to get through it. But this was, and not even so much that it was like a battle scene, but just the levels of description, uh, you know, it was just, I don't know. It's really good. No, I totally agree. I totally agree with you. It's, um, it was hard not to be sucked in uh, reading this chapter. I know that I powered through it. I think Monday this week um, and just read it all in one sitting because I just couldn't, I couldn't put it down. I mean, unless I had to. You just kind of wanted to keep going. Yeah, I was, uh, like I said, I was very unexpected. It was very unexpected to have Reyes get pulled into this elder vision. And then I, I, I don't know if you feel the same, but I feel like a bunch of, a slew of new information just was thrown at our way 
while he's in this this elder vision like like Onos Tulin, how did he end up there? I know some type of conjuring with the bone casters, which you know we really don't have a lot of information about yet. Also, you know, Kirul uh coming out of nowhere and the gods bowing to mortals, etc. Like you don't really get that sense from this book, you know, with Opan being a huge player and kind of manipulating things as well as like Krupp and his elder visions or his dreams, you know, these are some type of prophecy or pattern given to him by whatever God is giving it to him. So it, it, it you don't really get that sense of what Karul is telling Rayist. And there's just a lot of like hidden, not hidden, but just a lot of new information that happens here. And it kind of makes me all feel like Krupp is a little bit more powerful than we've been led to believe this whole time. I, I would think so. I, I got that feeling too. And then maybe, like, I was I was thinking about this Onos Tulin, and I was trying to remember back, but that is Tool, correct? Correct, yeah. That was with Lorne? Correct, Lorn? yeah. Or was that separate character? No, they're the same character. Okay. So after they got out of the barrel, he said, Tool said he was going to, he wanted to watch and observe the tyrant. But I'm pretty sure he said he wasn't going to interfere. See, that's what I thought and too. And he pretty, pretty clearly just interfered by fucking him up with a sword. Yeah, I don't know. I guess that this, and, and I'm sure again, I've learned to have faith in, you know, the author in the story. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be honest. I don't quite understand the whole. How does him being clanless really have to do with anything? Like, why him being in a clan or not? Why does that really? I guess. Why does that make it so he can or can't fight Rayist? Because if he was in a, like, if, because then uh, he could be controlled, and then I, there must be some sort of way he could control all the other ones. So if he's not in a clan, I guess even if race did get control, then it's just over him. So essentially. But I thought they said that he couldn't even manage to do that. Right. So essentially. If I'm remembering correct. I think, yeah, okay, now you're reminding me. So it sounds like it sounds like that if Tool was connected to a clan, then essentially the tyrant would be able to enslave them again. Yes. Gotcha. That makes more sense. The other thing that struck me when... Uh as I was writing my summaries for this and got to the end of this, uh, at the end of the previous chapter, when Circle Breaker was leaving and he saw Krupp sleeping, you know, this is, I guess, where Krupp went to. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. That's uh, some good observation there, sir. Totally didn't think about that the first time through, but... The, the second time through, it, it, the dots kind of connected for me. I mean, it, yeah, it makes sense now. 
going back to it, and I didn't even think about it, but, you know, in the previous episode, we talked about Krupp falling asleep at the end of the table. So I'm assuming that wasn't willingly, like whoever is giving him these these abilities is uh, essentially forcing him to fall asleep where he where he is, you know? I guess I just kind of assumed that he's a fat little asshole who ate a whole bunch and got tired after eating and fell asleep. <laughs> but I think that's what the author may want us to think. Well, it worked for me. Yeah, that does work. <laughs> he had me fooled. Well, yeah, I mean, is there like there's hardly a moment where he doesn't have something in his hand going to his mouth. <laughs> right. It's either that or a handkerchief wiping off sweat. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, because he's <laughs> nervous. Right, right. Well, anything else you want to add to that first section there, sir? Um, I don't have anything. I feel like I feel like there's a lot to talk about and we could probably spend an entire episode really nitpicking all the little details in the section. But I feel for the most part, the summary was beautiful. And this was a great way to start the chapter. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I don't. it doesn't really let up much either. No, it doesn't. It just keeps kicking you. But yeah, I mean, if uh, if you're ready, I'm ready. Yeah, go ahead and take it away. Kalam gestured and Paran ducked down. To Paran, something was wrong with his garden. Mistaking the feeling around him for exhaustion, he thought he could see the darkness pulsate and the smell of decay had thickened to a stench. Kalam reached for his knives. Ahead, gas lamps flickered and people gathered on a terrace. Kalam gestured for Paran to stay where he was and then was off into the shadows of the trees. Paran edged forward to where Kalam had once been. When he reached Kalam's previous position, he observed a clearing of some kind. A feeling of wrongness ached in Paran's skull. In the center of the clearing, something blockish stood there, maybe an altar of some kind. In front of it stood a small woman, with her back to Paran. The next moment, Kalam was behind her, drawing his knives back. The woman drives her elbow backwards and connects with Kalam's stomach, she then gets up, turns around, and drives her knee into Kalam's royal jewels. Paran, with sword in his hand, dashed into the clearing. The woman saw him and yelped a frightened, No! Paran stopped and Kalam sat up. Groaning, he says, Damn it, sorry! And they all thought, as they all thought she was dead. The woman eyed Paran as he approached. Raising a hand, Sorry slash Absalar says to Paran, 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 that she killed him. She collapses to her knees, recalling Paran's blood on her hands. Rage fired in Paran, raising his sword and moving to stand over her. Alam tells him to wait, and that something is not right here. With great pain, Kalam stands up and goes to take a seat on the stone. Sari tells him not to sit on it and asks Kalam if he can feel it. Paran like pipes in and admits that he can feel it. And then Sari informs Paran and Kalam that it's not stone. It's actually wood and it's growing. Suspicious, Paran asks Sari if she knows him. 
Sorry shakes her head no that she doesn't, but reveals that she does know Kalam and that they must have been friends. Kalam in the background kind of chokes on something as he hears this. Haran tells Kalam to stay there and winds his way through undergrowth to the terrace crowded with guests. Haran is able to see Whiskey Jack and his squad arrayed on the garden's edge. At the sound of Paran approaching, all six men turned around. Paran points at Whiskey Jack and Mallet. Whiskey Jack whispers something to Quick Ben and then approaches Paran. Paran tells Whiskey Jack that Kalam has found Sari and something else. Paran tells Whiskey Jack about Sari's strange behavior. Mallet grunts at this. Whiskey Jack inquires about this something else. Haran simply tells him that he doesn't know, but it's really ugly. Whiskey Jack tells Mal to go with Paran and to take a look at Sari. Whiskey Jack asks Paran if they've made contact with the Assassin's Guild. Paran tells Whiskey Jack that they have not. And Whiskey Jack informs Mal to bring back Kalam as he needs to talk with him. So kind of a lot of setup here. Yeah, definitely a setup-y um, section. And I know that it, it, it took me a little bit, but there, there was some mental mental gymnastics, so to speak, to kind of like put everybody where they are and just kind of create a like a visual environment for these characters, kind of central to this garden, so to speak. Um but yeah, I think it's interesting that I mean this is the first time that Paran and Sari have met up without her trying to kill him. So I think this is the first time that Paran has encountered his killer from all those chapters ago. I did not even think of that. You know, so like I can only imagine why he's fucking pissed, you know? Yeah, it would be, I mean, at minimum, mixed feelings, right? <laughs> right. That's putting it lightly. Definitely some mixed feelings. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It was just so good. And I mean, this fucking weird thing sitting in this garden. I mean, this is totally the acorn or the thinnest, right? Like this has to be the thinnest. I don't know what else. It was. That's how I took it. Yeah. But I, again, and this is another one of those unexpected things. Like I, I never would have imagined that this acorn would grow, even though I should have saw it coming because Acorns essentially sprout seeds and turn into trees, you know? I don't think it's like actually an acorn, but it's, I mean, it was something small, but, and, and, uh, Lauren buried it, but I'm, so I'm wondering, you know, she must not have buried it very deep. No, probably um, not. And then it started growing, but yeah, I was kind of like, why, how did they find this thing? But it, it grew. Yeah. And I'm assuming that. Sorry, ventured into the garden from, you know, the quote unquote back wall where she's supposed to stay um, because she probably saw this thing growing in front of her eyes. You know, it doesn't seem like it's just, you know, like where it grows over a long period of time. Like it seems like it's growing kind of at a rapid pace, you know, or at least a consistent pace. Yeah. Like they, yeah. It, they see it happen. I think it's because uh, you know, Sari only she only talks about her her 
remembering killing Paran, but she doesn't really seem to give off any type of anything else about what Sari may have done in the past. And I think it was just really good, quick thinking on Kalam and Paran's part to just more so Kalam to recognize that like something's not right here. And Paran to be like, yeah, you're right. Let me go. Let me go find somebody, you know? Yeah. Just to, you know, I guess make sure things don't escalate. Escalate as well as to set aside your anger in that moment and recognize that the situation is, is much more, uh, I guess, precious uh, than getting revenge or, you know, killing the one that killed you, even though you're still alive. Yeah, it would be, I mean, I would probably have a hard time, like, not being like, why shouldn't I slash your head off right now? Right, exactly. Like, you fucking bitch, you're dead. <laughs> exactly. But, yeah, I uh, I really liked this setup. And again, you know, everything seems to be central to the garden, um, as it was in the previous previous chapter we had characters moving in and out and now all of that setup is is leading us to the present chapter present section really yeah it's you know like i don't know i feel like we're getting beat over the head with this, this garden stuff but it's still like it never really dawns on me till you start talking about it like oh yeah you're right <laughs> there it is <laughs> yeah i mean i think the one thing that i i am enjoying so far is like nothing feels old like every everything that I'm reading in this book seems fresh. I'm really liking that. Um, there's always, not necessarily always, but there's there's something new uh, to be read. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's definitely not like anything I've read before. No, not at all. Um, what do you think, Whiskey Jack whispered to Quick Ben? I don't know. I did. I was. I didn't. I, I didn't really have any, I guess, anything that jumped out to me that I thought maybe it's about this. Yeah, I don't know. What about you? No, I don't have anything either. I just thought it was a really weird thing to put in there. The section would have been totally fine without that sentence. So I'm wondering if there has to be a reason, you know, or maybe a setup to something that's going to happen in the future. But uh, yeah. Yeah, that very well could be. But yeah. Yeah, good setup piece. Really, I really, I don't. If I were to like remove this section, I don't know if if the chapter would have had as much of an impact as it did. Yeah, just it's you know definitely more emotional with you know Paran interacting with with Sari, and we even get more of that later on. We'll talk about that then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but. Um... I guess those were my only thoughts on that particular section. I don't think I had anything to add on top of what you excellently did. Sweet. Well, let's uh, let's keep the train rolling. All right. We'll roll into the next section here. Ralik made his way across the chamber to the front doors. Guests interrupted their conversations as he passed and resumed once he cleared them. He was exhausted more exhausted than he should be from the blood he had lost from a wound that had already healed. The discomfort he felt was emotional. 
He came across Krupp, who looked scared. Ralik tells him he should be terrified. Krupp tells Ralik to shut up. He needs to think. Krupp tells him to hit the road. Destiny is waiting. It seems this world was prepared for race, no matter, quote, what flesh he wears. Ralik doesn't have a clue of what to make of this and thinks it's likely that Krupp is drunk. He doesn't know what to do now. His thoughts are muddied by his own success. As he walked, he thought this should should have been Cole who went through this. He played the part of Cole's will. He hoped Cole's own will would return, but what if it didn't? A woman in a silver mask touched his arm before he could think of an answer. She tells him she's been curious about him for a while, but now she sees she should have kept a better eye on him. Ocelot's death was preventable after all. He instantly knew it was Vorkin. He says Ocelot was a fool, and if Orr's contract was sanctioned by the guild, he would take the punishment. Vorkin did not say anything to Ralik, and Ralik kept waiting. Vorkin said he is apparently a man of few words. Still, Ralik said nothing. Vorkin chuckled and said he awaits punishment as if he's already a dead man. Vorkin said that Orr possessed protective magic, yet it did him no good. How interesting, Vorkin says. She needs his skills and to follow her. I think it's funny. I I never really expected Ralik to... I don't know if he's necessarily doubting himself, but I think that he's kind of curious if like maybe he is feeling a little bit of uh, guilt for maybe overstepping his bounds a little bit too much. You know, like I think that in call's perspective, what Ralic did for call while he'll appreciate, maybe he wanted to do it himself. Yeah, I could see that. I kind of felt like Ralic just, you know, he did these things and, I, th- I think he didn't think he was going to feel conflicted about it, but he is kind of like what we saw with Marilio at the end of the last chapter when they left Lady Simtal. Just the, you know, kind of the doubts he had about things. I, I feel like that's kind of what we're getting here a little bit too. Right. I feel like they're definitely similar, but I feel like Marilio feels a little bit more remorse uh, for the death of, of Orr. Kind of like a, you know, all life is precious kind of take on it, as well as Lady Simtel. Um, you know, we're assuming, or at least I'm assuming, that she's essentially going to take her own life because of things that we discussed in the previous chapter. So, but I don't I don't get that sense with Ralic uh quite as much. I feel like they're definitely similar, but I think that he's yeah he's debating he's doubting something and i don't know if i can quite put my finger on it like i could with marilio so maybe that's the difference it just it's kind of seems like he's holding it a little closer to the chest you know right uh, that's how i felt anyways you know kind of seemed like marilio was a little more open about how he felt and relics maybe kind of starting to get there right yeah like they had all this, they had this, you know, big plan of, of grandeur to get to get revenge. And while it's nice as the reader to kind of have that 
particular piece of the book come to a close. Um, it, it's cool that he's the author is still incorporating some some afterthoughts of of that chain of events, you know. Right. But I mean, outside of that, um, unexpected number three is I was not expecting Vorkan at all to basically reveal herself to Relic and us, the readers. Yeah, I wasn't sure if we were going to get get that or not, but we did. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we definitely did. I think it was kind of cool. It definitely was cool. You know, we've heard, you know, we've heard about this character, and you know, it's been kind of a mystery, but now here she is. Here she is. Yeah, those were the only things that I had thoughts on in this particular section. I feel like again, it was more of a definitely a setup piece, and you know, transitional for our characters. The yeah yeah definitely transitional. The I guess the only other thing I would add to it was I I think this is the first time or at least the first time that I can recall that we've seen Krupp be described as scared or you know fearful. I would agree, but I mean, putting myself in in Krupp shoes like holy shit! I mean, he just came up face to face, granted via a dream. But, you know, sometimes dreams can be pretty damn vivid. And this would scare the absolute fuck out of me. So I can only imagine. Right. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. Not a dream I'd want to have. Absolutely not. No. No, I'm good. Well, if you're ready to move on, take it away. Sweet. Krakus had hand upon Chalice's mouth, and he was laying on top of her. Krakus removes his thief's mask, and Chalice's eyes widen in recognition. Krakus tells her that if she screams, it'll be the end of her. Krakus then tells Chalice that he just wants to talk, and he won't hurt her unless she screams and makes a run for it. He then removes his hand. Immediately, Chalice grills into him for what he's done and not to mention if Gorlis finds out. Crocus then puts a hand over her bitch mouth again. Crocus asks who the fuck Gorlis is, and that why did she betray him? Chalice is confused as hell, and tells Crocus that she doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. Crocus relives the tale of the guard in the garden. She cuts him off at this point and says that they had hired a seer and that seer discovered that a woman working for the rope had killed the guard. The seer was so scared that she left before she could even take payment. Crocus at this point let her go and sat on the ground. Chell stood up and started brushing herself off. Crocus asks her what about Meese and the guards at his uncle's house and the hunt. Again, Chalice is like, what the fuck are you talking about? and tells him that she has to get going as Gorlis is looking for her, and if he finds her here, there will be trouble. Crocus springs to his feet and tells her to wait. Crocus tells her to forget the fool, and that they'll be formally introduced in about a year, as his uncle a famous, is a famous writer. Chalice scoffs at this and shoots him and his uncle down, due to the lack of power and influence. 
She caps us off by saying that Gorlis loves her. Crocus starts to speak, but then cuts himself off as he gets lost in thought. Chap Chalice snaps him back to reality and asks what it is that he wants from her. He blurts out company, friendship. Chalice makes the comment that before him, she'd never met a real thief. Crocus kind of takes like offense to this and explains to her what life as a thief is, and she wouldn't know real until she saw a man die. Chalice rebuttals and tells Crocus that she did witness someone die this evening, and that if that's what real is, then she didn't want any part of it. She walks away and leaves Crocus. Crocus just watched as she walked away. He turned to the garden, hoping Apslar was still where he left her. So Crocus pretty much just friend zones himself. He just straight up friend zones himself, which I, I find interesting because in his moments of, you know, thought that he gets lost in, he's kind of debating if he loves her or not um, in kind of a response to Chalice admitting that Gorlis loves her. I was wondering, like, you know, when we first get this name, like, Gorlis, like, who the hell is this? You know, it's messed up because in the last chapter, I thought that Chalice was just, had just forgotten his name and thought yes. his <laughs> name was Gorlis. Um, but I, I, I see now that that is not right. But that's what I had initially thought. I kind of, well... Yeah, I guess I did. Maybe I, I, I jumped a little quick before you were done talking, but I, I was thinking she must have been expecting somebody else. Well, obviously she was. She was expecting Gorlis, but I don't know. That just like it caught me off guard. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I've, you know, not gonna lie. I feel a little bad for Crocus. Feel just a little bad for him. I mean, he keeps making like really shitty like mistakes and poor decisions, and I feel like there's almost never any like payoff for Crocus from these decisions, either good or bad. Yeah, I, I'm I'm kind of wondering if he's going to survive this book. Yeah, I question that too, but I also question because Chalice doesn't seem to know about. Uh, Meese or the guards at his uncle's house. I was, I'm assuming the hunt means the hunt for Crocus to go to the high gallows. Um, but is it just Chalice wasn't privy to what her father was doing, or is there maybe some like sabotage happening either with Meese or Irelta? You know what I mean? Like, because Meese, I'm pretty sure, is the one who told him about all that. So is she kind of working for the enemy in this case? Or so maybe it really was a good thing that he just abandoned her. You you see what I'm you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. Like we You're thought it was a, spinning some conspiracies. Right, here. right. I mean, we thought it was a bad idea for him to just ditch Meese, but Maybe that was what saved him. Yeah, it could be. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Food for thought. Yeah, who knows <laughs> where that'll go. But. Definitely. Definitely food for thought. 
but yeah, I um, I'm not sure. It kind of feels like a good a goodbye on Chalice's part. I don't really imagine that they'll see each other in this book again. But I guess that's just me. It just kind of feels like a an end to these interactions with these two characters. Yeah, I, I think so. It, I think you're right on that. I, it almost seems like like a middle school breakup or something, doesn't it? Right, right. Like the note that says, I don't like you anymore. But if it is middle school, maybe they'll get back together in like three days. And <laughs> Monday, Monday, things will be fine. Right, right, right. Yeah. You didn't text me all weekend. But I like you now. Yeah. You're too clingy. <laughs> oh, we didn't talk all weekend. I really missed you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I guess so those are the only things that I had for, for this section. Um, I don't know about you, but. I'm good to move on if you are. Sure. All right. Mallet came to a stop in the opening of the woods. With Prand grabbing his arms, they looked into each other's eyes. How romantic. Mallet said this is as far as he goes. What is ever, whatever is in there hates his warren, and it seems to sense him or hunger for him. They'll have to bring the girl to him. The block of wood the thinnest, was now as big as a table. Kalam sent Sari over to Mallet, and she smiled as she went to Mallet. Pran comments that he's never seen Sari smile before, and that was a shame. Pran noticed that the storm had stopped. Kalam said he hoped he was right, and that it was going to be a long night, as it wasn't even midnight yet. They heard Mallet yelp, and turned around. He said the possession was gone. Paran surmised as much. Mallet said there was more, though. There's someone else in here. There's something on the wing. Something for you Ace Ventura fans. <laughs> someone who was in there all along, but he didn't know how it survived the rope's presence. Now he has to make a choice. Paran needs more information. Mallet says whoever this is has been protecting Sari. She would have went insane if she remembered anything of what she'd done the last two years. Whoever this presence is, is fighting those memories, but it needs help because it's dying. Bran asks if he is going to help. Mallet says he doesn't know because he doesn't know what it wants. He doesn't want her to end up possessed again. Bran, to make sure he understands, says this presence is protecting Sari only to take her over for itself. Mallet says, well, yeah, kind of, and he realizes it doesn't make much sense, but why else would she fight for Sari so hard? Pran says it's a woman? Well, it was, said Mallet. He's not sure what it is now. He only senses sadness. Pran says he won't give an order, but he does think he should help. And that was also Mallet's thought. Suddenly, Kalam says, to show yourselves as a man and woman enter the clearing. So, Justin, this is your big moment. I know you've been waiting for this. It's Riga! Has to be. 100% has to I'm be. I'm pissed right? that I doubted I, myself. No way it's not. 
<laughs> I thought I was fucking going crazy, man. Fucking knew it. <laughs> I I'm not gonna say I doubted you, but I I just don't know that I ever really bought into it, and I'm I'm glad you, the payoff was there for you because when I read that, I was I was really excited and I was really happy. I just I had a huge smile when I read that and recognized what it was. Yes, I'm fucking I'm pumped. I'm pumped, man. I mean, from the very first chapter, I knew that there was something wrong, and we don't get a payoff until sixty pages before the end. A lot of doubt, <laughs> but I mean, just <laughs> yeah, that's true. How many episodes did I like rant about this being a thing and then finally just giving up? You know, like I should have just persisted through, but yeah, I don't know. There was just so many clues that just led to not being true. I guess what I thought was a out in left field play is a home run. I don't know if I really have anything else for that particular section. I mean, I feel like that's the biggest the biggest reveal. Sure. In that part of the section. So um yeah, I guess at the end of the day I was just happy. I was just happy that uh I'm not crazy. <laughs> I never thought you were crazy. I'm not saying you thought I was crazy. I'm saying that the author made me feel crazy. That's sometimes how it goes. They put thoughts in your head, and it was almost as if I was possessed. Oh, oh. <laughs> my <laughs> own little for me there. <laughs> my own little Riga. <laughs> yeah, you better tame that shit down. Yeah, I know she's not seeing very well because she should have saw this. <laughs> Right, exactly. I'll have to get a new one. Yeah. All right. Well. Okay. No worries. All right. All right. Rockus approached closer on the forest floor. The voices he had heard in his search for Afslar had been that of two males and a female with a silver mask. Slowly, Crocus let out a breath when he recognized one of those men as Ralaknam. From Crocus's position, he was able to overhear all conversations held in this clearing. They were all staring at the strange-looking wooden house-shaped structure. The woman in the mask commented that there was ill in this weird structure. Kalam agrees and reassures her that it is definitely not Malazan. Crocus at this point is dumbfounded. Malazan, Spies, and Vorkan were in the same area? He couldn't believe it. Vorkan asks Ralik how it makes him feel. He simply says that it doesn't. Vorkan asks him to approach it. When Ralik approached the strange object, it stopped growing. Ralik admits to everyone that he had rubbed Otateral dust on himself. Vorkan tells him that it seems to be damaging its efforts to grow. Kalam at this point recognizes Ralik and recalls the events of the ambush. Kalam tells him, tells them all that he was surprised that Ralik survived. Vorkin agreed that Ralik is full of surprises. She goes on to tell Kalam of the bridge burners that his request had reached her, 
but before she could begin, she would like it if the rest of their party would join. At this moment, Mallet and Paran emerged carrying Epslar between them. Krakus's head was reeling at what he had just heard. Vorkin looks to Kalam, and Kalam begins to explain about the proposed contract on the real rulers of Jerujistan. 100,000 Jakatas, and the Empress offers the mantle of the city's control and title of the High First. Vorkin seems shocked and states that the Empress would give her 900,000 Jakatas. Kalam tells her that if that's the number, then yes. Vorkin explains that the Torod Cabal is a powerful force. And before she answers, she would like to know about the creature approaching from the east. She goes on to explain that five dragons have opposed it, and she assumes that the Torred Cabal and the Son of Darkness have some sort of an agreement. Kalam understands where this is going, and explains to Vorkin that they were not the ones who released the monster, and they will gladly welcome its destruction by the Son of Darkness. Kalam elaborates to Vorkan that they do not wish her to challenge the Lord of Moonspawn, because the alliance between Moonspawn and the Cabal will dissolve after all the Cabal leaders are killed. Vorkan finally accepts the contract, but she will not waste her assassins on this one. These assassinations require that of a high mage, so she will do them herself. Vorkan begins to ask about her payment, to which Kalam interjects and tells her there will that tells her that they will be delivered by Warren when the deed is done. She tells Kalam that she accepts the contract and that she must begin immediately. She turns to Ralik and tells him to stay put, as he seems to be stopping this thing from growing. Ralik grumbles and asks how long he's to stay put. Morgan tells him that he's to stay there until she returns. She also reveals to Ralik that Ocelot's actions were not sanctioned by the guild, and his punishment was to be death. She thanks Ralik for doing so on behalf of the guild. Crocus watched as Vorkan made her exit. Ralik just kind of sits on the stump, or whatever this thing is, and the man carrying Absalar backs towards the back wall. Or the, yeah, the man carrying Absalar heads towards the back wall of the garden. And then finally, Kalam and Ralik make their exit. Sorry, Kalam and Mallet. It took everything in Crocus's power to control himself from springing out there and confronting Ralik. Suddenly, Ralik gets up and looks straight at him, beckoning Crocus to come. Crocus does. Ralik tells him that he hides well, and he is lucky that Vorkin left her mask on, and that's the reason why Crocus couldn't be seen. Ralik then explains, um, before Crocus could condemn him, that Crocus needs to find Baruch, as he's likely still at the Fete, and tell him what has transpired here. Ralik continues to tell Crocus that if Baruch has gone home to find Mammoth instead. Crocus then at this point makes the connection, with Ralik's help, that his uncle is part of the Cabal. Ralik admits to Crocus that Baruch's presence is needed for the weird thing he, is, he will sit on. Crocus tells Ralik to consider it done. At that moment, a roar of pain and agony shook the trees. The strange object behind them burst with bright yellow fire. Ralik pushed Crocus out of the way and jumped on top of the fire. The fire winked out and cracks appeared, spreading in all directions. Crocus bolts for Lady Simitel's estate. Okay, 
So I guess one more previous thing about the previous section is that this was another thing that I was not expecting. But moving on to this current section, I um, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I hate it when that happens. I know. I know. I know. Um, Buck. Oh, well. It'll come back to me. But I guess I just really loved the way that this section was, like, set up. Because you almost get this sense as, like, you're, you're witnessing and overhearing and eavesdropping like you would, like, Crocus would. Is, I guess, how I read this. Is I imagine myself crouched in, uh, like, woods on my stomach, laying prone, like, watching all of these events unfold. So I thought that was pretty cool. It just kind of pulled me into the, the story a lot more. Yeah. I mean, you just really felt a part of it, didn't you? Yes, I totally did. I totally did. It's always fun when that happens. I think it's, uh, I feel like there's so much to dissect here. There's a lot that happened in this section. And again, it it's, I had to like really do a lot of mental gymnastics to try to like remember where everybody is from this previous section. Uh, you know, I know that I messed up a few times uh, in the summary, um, but yeah, it's just uh, lot, lots of pieces moving, lots of characters kind of coming to and fro. Yeah, there's <laughs> that's a very good way to put it. I agree with you. Lots of uh, hither and, well, I don't know what the, tither and hither, I, I don't know the words. Yeah, that works. But I find it interesting. <laughs> I find it interesting that in the section that you just read, the you know the thinnest is a table, but at this point, by the time I'm reading my section, it's described as almost like a small house. Yeah, it's just freaking going and going and going. Right. Oh, now I remember. Yeah, and the uh, the unexpected. I feel like that's the theme of this chapter is just just so many unexpected things like. And I feel kind of stupid for it, but like the Ototeral dust, I don't know why I didn't think of that as he's like putting it on himself, you know, uh, on his way to kill Ocelot. I don't know why I didn't think of it as Ototeral dust. We've been introduced to the sword for, I don't know, three fourths of the book now. Like, I don't know why I didn't connect the dots there. I guess I didn't feel like he put more on him. It was just like from when he put it on the first time, because I thought he dumped it all on himself. Right. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, before he climbed up. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Um, it's just going back to that chapter, reading that part where he's like, you know, bathing himself with the, you know, this rust colored dust. Uh, why I didn't, and you know, even Baruch or Ralic giving us the perspective of that interaction between him and Baruch explaining what this dust does. That's what I'm saying. Like, I, I can't believe I didn't make that connection there, you know? Oh, I guess, yeah, I was a little different. I, I didn't have that, I guess, hesitation. So when you, yeah. 
I figured it must have been, you know, it was, that's what was letting it happen. Oh, so you, you had a suspicion that it was some type of Ota Terrell dust from the beginning? I feel like, yeah, well, when it stopped growing, you mean? I think we're on two different things here. No, when, um, yes, yes, definitely. I think the, the Ota Terrell dust is, is having an effect on the finest growing. Yeah, but I'm talking about uh, Ralik when he first put the dust on him when he's on his way to kill Ocelot. Yep. That's well, we were told, yeah, there's going to be side effects. I don't know if side effects was the word that was used, but that's basically what it was, right? Right, right. Um, but in that moment, I don't know why I didn't associate the dust with the Ota Terrell sword, because they do the same thing and they repel magic. Like, that's what I'm not... That, that's what oh, I'm kind of yeah. like... Yeah. I still... I, then I, I I still had a little bit of a feeling, maybe just not as strong as I projected initially. But yeah, I, I thought they were tied together to some extent. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, look at you. That's pretty impressive. I'm, I'm, yeah. I feel like that was that was an easy miss. I should have caught that. Uh, I don't I don't know that I'd say that. You know, I don't like I didn't really have anything to go on to like support it. It was just kind of like, well. It, it kind of makes sense. It's just kind of a feeling. But yeah. I mean, either way, either way you look at it, it it's still, I guess I would see it as an accomplishment, right? Like whether you picked up on it at that point or not, you still get that payoff of like, oh man, I was right about that like really weird, strange hunch, you know, all those chapters ago. Versus like, oh, that makes sense, you know, that like aha moment. So both of them are pretty, I don't know, awesome to have. Yeah, they are. But it's, I guess it's more than anything, it's nice to know, like, okay, well, that's, like, we definitely know, like, what it is. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's, like, definitively set as this is what it is. It makes sense. Right. Um, did you catch that Vorkan is a high mage? I don't think I caught that the first I Yeah. No, I don't think I did. See, then I missed something like that. <laughs> it's all, it's all good. Um, but what I find interesting about that is she states that she's not going to waste any of her assassins on that one. Which, I mean, makes sense, right? Like, if she's a high mage, she's probably going to be the more capable one of executing yeah. these assassins. But, but, is this really about her being a high mage and sparing assassins? Or is this about the Jakatas and the title of high first? Because we know... Right? Like, we the readers know that Kalam, Whiskey Jack, Paran, we know what their real intent is. We know what their real goal for Darugistan is. And that is to make space for Dujek and his army. So, basically, Vorkan is going to do all this for naught. Like, she'll probably still get paid based on some of the things that Kalam has said, but they never intend to give her control of the city. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I, it, but I mean, still, that's a ton of money, you know, and that 
even if she doesn't have control of the city, she should have a shitload of money to do whatever she wants with. Unless these new occupants of Jerujasan come in with a different currency. Didn't really think of that. <laughs> Way to shoot it down. My theory down. <laughs> but it's uh, very, uh, very legitimately possible. Right. You know, I mean, what if they just barter? Their money's, her money's no good there. Your money's no good there. I doubt that's the case, but it, <laughs> I'm sure they have some currency. Oh, all right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just thought it was it, it was an abstract thought, and I really dig it. <laughs> did you uh, did you feel like Ocelot was definitely more of a dick after uh, Vorkan reveals that she that the hit on call wasn't wasn't sanctioned by the guild. Yeah, it was a dick move. It just kind of like definitely, definitely a dick move. Yeah. He uh he it definitely put the cap on like yep yeah, Ocelot was an asshole. It just kind of like makes your suspicions come to fruition a little bit. Yeah. And you like it's just a reassurance that you don't feel bad about him getting smoked. Right. Right. Getting smoked. Yeah, I don't I don't have any empathy for him. No, none at all. But yeah. I just kind of wonder what why Relic is going along with this. I mean, he clearly doesn't agree because he's warned Crocus to warn the cabal, essentially. But I I mean, I don't really he doesn't really make any type of attempt to dissuade Vorkan at all. Is that just simple obedience, or is is there a different game here? I don't know. I feel like there's something up with that. And again, like, it kind of, the, the way that the, the story reads, or is going so far, is that all these people are in cahoots, but you have to remember that they're still technically on opposite sides. Right? Like, Crocus, Relic, Marilio, Krupp, they don't want Jerujasan to fall into Malazan's hands. Yes, the bridge burners are kind of a uh I don't know what the word is for it, but a little a mutinous crew because their empire has pretty much pushed them to extinction. So this is their way of fighting back, but they're still there's their goals, even though they're not the same as Empress Lucene, are uh a, kind of similar to Lucene's in, in that they still want Jerujistan for themselves so that they have an army to fight the Malazans. So they're they're not really on the same side here, but it's just it's funny to me that Ralph doesn't even put up a fight. Yeah, especially when Yeah. It... I mean, we know he's capable of a lot. So just to almost, you know, see him get kind of pushed over a little bit is kind of almost what you don't expect. Right. Right. I don't know if I made much sense. No. Um, yeah. I mean, you did. Yeah. I just, sorry. I got <laughs> oh, okay. I got lost in the summary for a second. Um, yeah. I feel like I didn't read a part of it, but I'm pretty sure that I did. Yeah, I don't think you skipped over anything. 
Yeah, okay, yeah. Because I ended with Crocker's Bolts for Lady Simmetal's estate, right? Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, sorry, continue. Uh, what, what were you... What were you saying, or did you conclude your thought? I think my my thought was over there. Okay, <laughs> okay, all right. Um, yeah, I guess the only other thing that I I found was um was interesting is that uh, Kalam reveals that Vork or not Vorkan, but Lucine was once an assassin, and so she follows like you know, assassin rules and expectations, and therefore the money is pretty much guaranteed to Vorkan. I thought we heard that earlier. I thought we heard that towards the beginning of the book. Maybe? I know that she had claw assassins with her, but I guess I don't remember. I don't remember all <laughs> six months ago. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's been a little bit, I guess, but I... I and I, it's certainly possible that I'm mistaken, but I thought we were told that at some point in the story early on. Could be. Yeah, I guess if that's true, I don't remember. No worries. No worries. Um, and then I guess the only other thing that I have is that uh, the roaring pain and agony that shook the trees, I'm guessing that this is uh, Reist finding his new body. I think that is likely. I don't. I, nothing else would really make sense. Right. Yeah. Because it. It just. It totally. It was. It was jarring when I read the book. And again, another thing that like I wasn't expecting. You know. So like things just keep, like they mellow out a little bit, and then like something happens, and then they mellow out a little bit, and then like something else happens, and it's just kind of a crazy roller coaster of a chapter. I mean, you're kind of describing the whole book here also. You're, yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. It's definitely a roller coaster and, and one that I am having fun on. Oh, yeah. But uh, those were my only thoughts for those, that section, which had a lot of little trinkety pieces of information in it. All right. March on. Sweet. Baruch signaled for the carriage to stop. Something happened, he said to Rake. They left too early. Rake says to hold on a minute. The tyrant is weakened, and there are enough mages left to deal with him. He tells Baruch to return home and wait for the Empire's next move. It won't be long. Baruch wants to know what's happening. Will he challenge the tyrant or not? Rake says only if it's necessary. In the meantime, the streets need to be empties. emptied. He's assuming Baruch wants to minimize casualties. Baruch wants to know how the fuck he expects that to be done. There's 300,000 people in the city and every goddamn one of them is in the streets. Rake says he'll take care of it. He just needs to get up high. Baruch says, Cruel's Belfry. Rake says they'll speak later. Baruch tells him it's 300 paces to the tower. Is he going to walk? Rake says yes. He's not ready to expose his warn yet. He whips out Dragnipper and yells, if you value your souls, make way. I want to know what Rake is going to do at the fucking tower. Like, how is he going to get 300,000 people off the streets from the tower? Or am I, like, not associating that correctly? Uh, well, I assume, you know, a few thousand people probably saw him when he just 
you know, took his sword out. And I imagine word will probably spread pretty quick. Um, I don't know, but maybe he's going to go up on top of the tower and like hold his sword up and it's going to be like struck by lightning or something. And I don't, I don't know. <laughs> maybe they're not connected. I don't know. I don't know. That was weird. It was a short little piece. It was, but I liked, I liked the interaction and I just, I like that Rake's just like, I'm going to take care of it. Like, don't worry. And uh, just the description of his sword. Um, you know, I didn't do it any justice, but it uh, says Rake raised high. The sword groaned awake. Chains of smoke writhing from the blade. A terrible sound as the wheels, a, a terrible sound as a wheels creaking filled the air. And behind it arose a chorus of moaning filled with hopelessness. Before Lord Adamander Rake, the crowd on the streets shrank back. All thoughts of festivity were swept away. That is just, I, I liked, you know, I mean, when Paran was within the sword, you know, we got the creaking wheel, but just that coming up again and just the sound of hopelessness. Like, what does that sound like? Well, I guess now I'm going to think of a creaky wagon wheel is the sound <laughs> of hopelessness. Yeah. Every time you feel hopeless, you're just going to hear that in your head now, huh? Yes. <laughs> Ah, uh, damn you, Steven Erickson. Damn you. It's okay. I can live with that. Yeah. 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 I guess I didn't, I didn't really have a lot for this, this section. So it just, it seemed, it seemed transitional and set up y, you know? Yeah. I agree. Uh, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't really have anything else here either. Um, so we can keep going here if you're ready. Sweet. Paran joined Whiskey Jack and Quick Ben at the fountain. Paran informs them of their meeting with the guild and the guild accepting the contract. Quick Ben realizes that he doesn't have a headache anymore and wonders if he should access his warren. Whiskey Jack says, why the hell not? Quick Ben slips into the shadow of a pillar. At that man, an old... Or at that moment. Not at that man, an old moment. At that, at that moment, an old man wearing a ghastly mask was making his way towards Whiskey Jack's line of men. A huge-breasted woman and her servant approached the man. Suddenly, a stream of energy flowed between Paran and Whiskey Jack and hit the old man in the chest. Whiskey Jack's sword was in his hand as he turned to find where his wizard was. Magic swirled from Quick Ben as he pushed Whiskey Jack out of the way and raced towards the woman. Paran drew his sword and sprinted forward. A bestial roar stemmed from the old man as he set his eyes on the voluptuous woman next to him. A stream of energy stemmed from the old man. Quick Ben collided with the woman and then her servant, and they both toppled to the ground, safely out of the way. The stream of energy cut a swath into the crowd, incinerating everything it touched. The energy branched outwards to trees and stone and marble, destroying everything. One tendril of energy reached for the sky, while another wreaked havoc on Lady Simitil's estate, and a third struck towards Paran as he closed the distance. The power struck the sword, and Paran, along with his weapon, vanished. The sergeant stepped forward, and as he did, something struck his shoulder, spun around, his right knee buckled. Whiskey Jack could feel the bone snap. After wrestling away from a toppled pillar, Fiddler was grabbing his 
grabbing Whiskey Jack's cloak and dragging Whiskey Jack to safety. Whiskey Jack at this point falls unconscious. Quick Ben found himself underneath the pile when he felt pressure against his back and shoulder as the woman pushed herself upright, shouting at Mamet, Anna Kalith Arrest? Arrest? Quick Ben's eyes widen as he felt the surge of energy from the woman. The woman yells, Arrest, as a pulse of energy hits Mamet. Mamet yells in pain. She calls for Quick Ben's backup and explains that Mamet has been possessed by the Jack Hut. Quick Ben surveys his surroundings, noticing that Whiskey Jack was not where he had been, and neither were the others. Crumbled bodies lay everywhere, and for those that had survived had fled, the woman beckons Quick Ben to act quickly. As Mammoth is recovering and she has not much left to contribute to this fight, Quick Ben just stares at her. Do so, we have a rival for your soft pillows? Uh, no. No. She <laughs> just, will just never checking. take soft pillows places. Okay. No. Tattersail is mine, and her pillows of soft are mine, and this other woman can just join us. <laughs> oh, all right, all right. Yeah, we, hey. we've decided to become polyamorous. If that works for you, then that's great. Okay, I love it. Nothing better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, holy shit, did fucking... Everything just fucking get exponentially more intense. Like, I loved this section. I liked reading this section. I had a little bit of a hard time following it. My summary or the chapter? Because I felt like I was a little chaotic with it. Just with, like, the energy going everywhere. Yeah. um, I think that what energy was meant for the voluptuous woman soft pillows part two uh just for whatever reason ended up cascading or rebounding into the crowd of people and just fucking like decimating them and you know i just it it was such a visceral image in my head like i know that it was described that like body parts were missing and like cut in half and they're just yeah just yeah it was fucking brutal and then that energy just kind of like bounces and starts to i guess evolve in a way it starts off as just this energy that decimates an entire crowd but then gets larger and maybe more um multitask with it so the you know it feels weird that like energy like would multitask like I mean, it is Omatos Falak. I mean, it's fucking ancient as hell. True. But, I mean, I'm I, I, not disagreeing with you. I totally, I totally can see where you're coming from there. Um, yeah, this was probably the section that I struggled with the most out of this chapter. But, um, I mean, there's like one in every, everything, right? I, I don't right. know. Maybe it's just me. Well, I think that going back to, you know, um, my previous section, the roar of pain and agony that shook the trees as Crocus and Relic and, you know, the finest blowing up, well, not blowing up, but igniting in, in yellow fire. 
Um, I think that is supposed to coincide with this section as the stream of energy that, you know, so like Whiskey Jack and Paran are like standing next to each other. Mammoth is in front of them. And then this very breasty woman approaches Mammoth. And I always imagine that this like stream of fire, you know, splits, splits Whiskey Jack and Paran, you know, down the middle, like goes in between them and then hits Mammoth in the chest. I think that is Rayest moving bodies or possessing Mammoth. And then from there, you know, Jaghut possessed essentially is just on a fucking rampage at this point. That's kind of how I took it. I could, that was a little easier to follow that way for me. Yeah. I don't know what, uh, I forget her name, Darudin. I don't, I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the busty woman because she had a servant with her. Why why he's not naming her in this section, I'm not quite sure. But I'm pretty sure it's Darudin. Or Darudin. And um, I'm not sure what she's shouting. I don't know what this Annie Khalith arrest means. Um, but I mean, I looked at the back of the book. I looked in the Dramatis Personae. I didn't see anything about that particular phrase so i'm not sure really what that means so there definitely is like a level of mystery um in this section but for the most part i I feel like i was able to follow what it was that you know happened you know uh derudin is basically taking on the jag hut possessed and at the end is asking for quick ben's help uh to help you know defeat it or keep it at bay or whatever and i think i think quick ben at the end of this section is just in shock that all he can do is just stare at her yeah it seems like a lot doesn't it yeah i mean whiskey jack's fucking but he's just staring right yeah i i mean there's there's a lot that's happening and you know he essentially saves darudin and his and her servant's life uh, by knocking them out of the way, and it you know if it wasn't for Quick's quick thinking, <laughs> they would probably be dead. And one less contract for or one less person for Vorkan to kill. Oh, uh, he just lost a hundred thousand uh, Jakarta. Points. Um, but yeah, I I mean it it was definitely definitely a more chaotic section. Um, lots of lots of things happening, but I think that as things go on, um, things kind of fall in place here. Yeah, it, it's. I still don't know how things are going to get tied up, but it's we're definitely getting closer. Right. The only the only other thing that I thought was, I guess, stood out for me was. Uh, when Paran is drawing his sword, you know, shortly after Mamet gets possessed, it's described that the sword keened in terror. And so keened, from what I understand from looking it up online, is a word of like sadness or sorrow. Um, and I'm not sure how sorrow and terror or being afraid uh, have in common. So 
I'm curious is like Opan being empathetic or is he being a cowardice asshole? Cause there's, you know, definitely something going on with Paran's sword. So I still believe that Opan has influence over it. That's a hard one for me to pick a side on. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm, I guess I'm going to go more with the cowardice. That's what I would tend. That's where I would go. I, I have a hard time seeing Opan being empathetic. And I mean, we've seen Opan scared before, so that's right. that's what I would go with. Yeah, but I'm sure that like Opan is shitting your pants, is shitting their pants. But yeah. <laughs> Those are really my only thoughts for uh, that particular section. So I'm cool with moving on if, if you're cool. Sure. Um, this this one I liked a lot. Um, it was pretty cool. It reminded me a lot of when Pran was in Dragnipur. But here goes. A storm raged in the sky above Pran. He had chance in his hand and the sword was hot and moaning. He studied the sky, watching the lightning. He heard a crash to his right. As he looked that direction, he saw a figure a thousand paces away. Another figure appeared and was in retreat from whatever the first figure was. They were getting closer to him. Behind him, he heard bubbling sounds, and a house rose out of the lake, steaming. Another sound behind him, and this time it was the fighters. A Talan Imus with a two-handed sword. Despite the weapon and its skill, it was still being driven back. The opponent, uh, the Finnist, described with jagged features, in, is in a blood rage and strikes the Imus, sending it basically to Pran's feet. Pran looks down at it. It says that Azath is not ready. It's too young, doesn't have enough strength to imprison the Finnist. When the tyrant fled, I sought out its power. Defend the Azath. The Finnis seeks to destroy it. Pran looked at the figure drawing near. Defend against that. Is he fucking crazy? It's my best Bill Paxton alias impersonation. Not very good. He didn't have a choice. He swung chance. It swept through the energy and did nothing, but the power came over Pran. Pain, blindness raced through him. His thoughts and sense of self dissolved. Pran felt like an invisible hand closed around him. He heard mine in his mind. You are mine. He fell to his knees and dropped chance. He had no choice. He could only obey. A fleeting thought came to his mind. A tool. Nothing more. All I have done, all I have survived to reach but this. He heard sound over and over, louder and louder, howling. He felt the cold Retreat, replaced with heat. Paran howled, the blood of a hound. Blood no one can enslave. The finnist faltered back. His body filled with pain, but he could feel the strength building. He launched an attack at the finnist, beating it, biting it. The finnist tried to push Paran off, but could not. The imus pulled him off and told him to stop. The Azath would take it now. The imus looked at him. Paran picked up chance and said, Damn luck turned. Something to say, Imus? He said he was a long ways away from home. 
I'm curious as to your thoughts about this whole section, because I feel like this section really stretched my creative thinking. How so? I just, what is, what is the Azath? What, I mean, like, and the Talani mass goes from fighting Rayist to fighting the Finnist now. And then Haran gets engulfed by this Finnist, but somehow is able to, or is able to overcome it, um, to which I'm assuming now gives either Tool or the Azath uh, a way of conquering or beating it. Uh, I mean, I know that it's supposed to be in this kind of like, you know, abstract type world. I'm not exactly sure where he got sent to, but it just kind of seems this like, like epic boss fight that you would get into like a video game. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I can. Uh, yeah, I see that for sure. So that's that's kind of where like I understand what happened and things make sense, but they don't make sense at the same time. Is kind of I guess the way that I'm feeling about it. I kind of felt like the finest must be like an extension of race. Like you must use that to help enslave people, and I. I feel like that's kind of like what happened, but where I, I, I can understand your struggle a little bit. Cause this, the part I struggle with is, you know, we hear how strong Ray is supposed to be, you know, he just enslaves everything. And, you know, then Paran like beats it. <laughs> like, so what is that saying about Paran? Is he just, is he the mortal that's going to, you know, take him out? I mean, maybe. Like, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I kind of got mixed signals there a little bit. I feel like I feel like the Finnist and Rayist, as you pointed out, they're two different entities here, and I think that once they are joined, they are kind of like that unstoppable force. But being that they're separated at the moment, they are. I guess they can be killed, or destroyed, if that makes sense. Is kind of what I'm getting, like that's the vibe I'm getting from what is happening here. And and maybe I just need to go back in and, and like really read it more carefully, but it's not like I haven't read the chapter twice now. So yeah. Oh, you you definitely should have done that then. Reread it? You should have read it twice. You should have read it twice. I did read it twice. <laughs> I know, I was just being dumb. Oh. <laughs> Damn. Sent me doubting again. <laughs> but yeah, I, I just... I feel like the, the suction was very abstract with a lot of new information. And again, how does Tool keep showing up? Yeah. I mean, it just... I mean, I'm sure that there's a purpose to it, but it just kind of seems like, oh, I don't have anybody to fight the finish. Let's just put Tool in there. Like he's just kind of the convenient choice or something? Right, yeah, because of the fact that, you know, I mean, even if he was to be defeated, you know, it, nothing nothing gets extended to anybody else beyond that, you know. But also, I mean, wasn't the whole point of Mammoth getting stuck in the, you know, the Jack Hut Barrow, Barrow was that he had 
a connection to the goddess of disease and Mamet ends up being fucking possessed anyway. Which, how the hell, I mean, clearly he wasn't stuck there. Clearly, Reyes knew of him hanging out in the barrow, even though Mamet probably had no idea. You know what? I didn't even think of that, because, yeah, like, how convenient. Like, that's who's in the barrel, and that's who gets taken over, like, possessed. Right. So, I think Reyes just decided not to make a move, because he may have needed a scapegoat. Connections that I just uh, did not make until we started talking. (laughs) It's all good. It's all good. But, yeah, I, I... I definitely I see two battles happening in this chapter. I see the the Rayest battle and then I see, you know, Jag Hut possessed with Mammoth, and then I see this battle with the Finnist. So I think that like all of these are kind of coming to a head as we reach the end of the chapter. So that's kind of where, you know, when um you know, tool in this particular section is saying like the Azath would take it now. I'm assuming based on this chapter or this the section that Paran was able to weaken weaken the Finnist with his will or whatever luck, you know, or uh the whole damned luck turned is did did the Finnist pick up the sword? I, mean, I don't think so. That's I don't think so either, but I that I can't make any other sense of that that comment. I don't think it did. I'm pretty positive that it didn't. Okay. I mean, can you make heads or tails of that comment? Like why would why would he pick up chance and say damned luck turned? Well, I just Yeah, well, you know, you always told when the luck turned to give the sword to his worst enemy, right? right? So maybe that's what will happen next. Maybe. It's the only thing I can kind of think of. Yeah, I mean, basically what I've gathered is that the Finnist was beaten by Paran and Chance uh, enough to whatever this Azath is would be able to overcome it. Or no longer... They were they are no longer battling is what I'm getting from this. And that is the Azath has taken control of the Finnist is kind of what I'm getting here. I don't know. I guess I didn't get the sense that it would like take over or control it, just that it would be almost like imprisoned and, you know, obviously not in the barrel, but like, that's kind of what I thought was just going to cage it more or less. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's perfect. That is much better than what I had. Um, caged is a perfect... It's kept at bay. Yes. So, but... Yeah, I guess, very interesting chapter. I, I really enjoyed the abstractness of it. I just wish that I was as confident about what I was reading as I do some of the other sections. Um, I'm cool to move on if you are. Sure. Yep. Definitely not a problem there. I. The only other thing I would add, maybe here quick, is <laughs> how weird is it that we, you know, there's a house rising up out of the lake, and like we didn't even bat an eye at it, you or I. <laughs> We're just like, ah, 
Nothing to see here. <laughs> right. And maybe that house was the thinnest. Um, I guess, yeah. I didn't think of that. I mean, the last we knew, it was shaped like a house. So maybe that is where Erickson was trying to lead us to maybe draw in more connections. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm probably going to sure. read, read this chapter again one more time just because it's, it's so interesting. All right. Haran reappears moments later, stumbling and falling in a heap. Quick Ben seeing this wonders where the hell he's been. A jaghut curse escapes Mammoth's mouth, and he regains his footing. He trembled with rage, eyes staring at Quick Ben. Quick Ben calls out, Awaken the seven within me! Quick Ben roared as seven warrens opened within him, and dealt them towards the terrace. The jaghut possessed threw up his arms to cover his face. Mammoth's body brutalized to shreds from the massive wave of energy. Quick Ben closes his warrens and says that he's done. Dedurin grabs her cloak, or grabs, sorry, Quick Ben's cloak and points to a man over the way and asks what he's doing. Quick Ben recognizes this man as Hedge. Hedge's eyes showed a maniacal gaze and a large crossbow pointed at Mammoth. Quick recognized this and quickly leapt leapt into action, diving for the woman a second time. He heard the sound of the bolt strike something. Quick Ben closed his eyes before colliding with the woman. This section gave me um, a little bit more confusion, but I think I figured it out. But before I do... Lay it on me. Lay it on me. Ooh. Okay. So, at first, I thought that Mammoth uh, or the Jag Hut possessed Hedge. But I think that what's happening here is that Hedge is, and this will come up in the later section, but I think he's aiming at something else. I, I don't think that initially I thought that he was being possessed, but now I'm pretty sure he's not. And he's actually just making a very, uh, very risky decision at this point, which we can swing back to in the last section. Sounds fair. Did you, did you get that feeling at all? Did you feel like he was being possessed? I guess I don't really remember to be perfectly honest okay also can we talk about the fact that quick ben's able to conjure seven warrens up to this point i thought it was just one per person something else i did not uh recognize but i do recognize that quick ben is a badass fucking badass right because he can conjure seven fucking i just want to know what they are like, what do we yeah, know? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know that, like, most most get assigned to some type of of Warren. Um, you know, like, Rake, for example, or, you know, Rayist, uh, and some of the other ones. What's that? Oh, I was just, I was just saying, like, the only one that I can really deduce that Quick Ben is the Warren of Chaos. Because... Earlier on in the book, he meets Hairlock there. 
Well, how many have we been introduced to? Probably seven. Okay, all right, moving on. Uh, this is where this is where you'll have to read what I wrote, and I'll read what you wrote. Or I can read this one, and you can read the other one. It doesn't matter to me. You know what? I think it'll be fun if uh, I read what you wrote and vice versa. Sounds good to me. We had a little uh, snafu here, so these are Justin's words, not mine. Crone flew tight circles around over the plane where the jag hut had been. He had come within 50 paces of the dragon and then disappeared. To Crone, it had been a glorious night, and she was reluctant to leave. She knew she had other places to be. With a chuckle, she tells herself, what a waste of energies. And all for what? More questions. She observed the two Soltake and Tisty Andy dragons as neither wanted to leave, as they were curious to know the result of the Jagut tyrant. Solana gets up and takes to the sky with her warren. Giving off a shriek, Crone rises above the trees. Rises above the trees. Crone rises and sees what Solana had seen. With joy and anticipation, she shrieked. And now it comes. It comes. I haven't the faintest idea what it is. I'm maybe maybe this is Rake uh, in the Karul Tower doing something. Um, I mean, they're both in the sky. They have a good vantage point. You know, they're pretty near to the Jerugistan city. So I don't know why she would call it it and not rake. So maybe he's like some sort of shapeshifter or I don't know. I have no idea what it is. I am not sure either. I don't even, you have a much better guess than I do. Um, but I do, I do, I feel like I have a little bit of maybe more of an understanding on what the soul taken is. Uh, because Crone okay, describes them as the Tisti Andi, soul taken Tisti Andi dragon. So immediately when that, for whatever reason, I associated it with Avatar. You know, how like Tisti Andi are either basically taking control of the dragons physically or they're like doing it remotely through some type of weird moon spawn technology. Oh, like they're warging into the dragons or something. Right. Yeah. And so that's where that's kind of where I'm going with the whole soul taken thing. And that maybe like dragons really don't, I mean, they do exist. However, they've just been commandeered by the Tistiande and that's why they're not seen as frequently or at all. I think I can get down with that. I'm sure I'm way off, but I'm, you know, as we read the series, I'm sure more will be explained on that, or hopefully will. Um, I think it's definitely one of those things that adds a little bit of uh, a mystery flavor to everything. Hey, you were right about Riga, so I'm not going to doubt you. Well, yeah, well, that makes one of us. You could very well could be right, right about this. I very well could be. But yeah, I mean, outside of that, I didn't. It was a very, very short. It, it was about a page long. Well, uh, why don't you, you want to read uh, my words here? Sure. QB closed his eyes. And, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Quickly. <laughs> <laughs> 
Quick bet. You know <laughs> I thought it would be funny, so I said it. Uh, Quick Ben closed his eyes and let go of the last of his warrens. As Quick Ben crashed into the woman, her arms wrapped around him. The explosion took his breath away. Debris went everywhere. Then all was still. Quick Ben sat up and looked where Mammoth had been. It was a crater now, and Mammoth was gone, presumably in a million bloody pieces. The woman spoke. She asked if they lived. Quick Ben said it was clever for her to close her warrants. She didn't understand. Quick, Quick Ben explained that Moranth weapons were simple. Warrens draw the explosive force, and the tyrant is dead. Hedge was next to him, half his face burned up. Quick Ben said he was an idiot, but before he could complete the sentence, Hedge said he's dead, isn't he? Just a hole in the ground now. The best way to deal with a mage. Paran climbed out of the ruins, asking where Whiskey Jack was. Hedge said in the wood. In the woods. Kalam looked down the hole and said something was moving down there. Quick Ben said impossible, but there was a form of a man taking shape. He said that they are dead, or worse. Something came out of the garden. Some roots shot into the crater towards the Jaghut possessed. It closed around the body as it screamed. Quick Ben said, Azoth? Here? Darudin said they arise. Quick Ben interjected and said, When unchained power threatens life. Kalam asks if the Jaghut will escape. Quick Ben says no and tells Kalam they are done with it and to leave. Darudin thanked the squad and left. Quick Ben asked Whiskey Jack was hurt. Fiddler said that he had a Bradley broken leg. They heard Darudin shriek out in surprise. A young man clad in black had been hiding. Fiddler wondered what he had heard. Quick Ben doesn't think he heard anything that would make sense to him and asks if Fiddler and Hedge are going to go blow the popsicle stand sky high. As Fiddler and they left. Kalam looked into the hole in the earth, looking at the water pipes. He noticed one didn't leak water, and he thought of the gray faces. Fuck. He wants to know where Fiddler and Hedge went. Quick Ben says they just left through the estate. He tells him to find Paran and to go to the place he knows. He's going after the saboteurs. They've planted mines at every major intersection. Look at the legend on the map, the main gas valves. They'll all go sky high. Okay, so this is my this is my connection with Hedge and the section before Crone when when he shoots the crossbow bolt. So this is it's starting to make sense to me now. I I think I'm I know where you're going. Because Quick Ben and Jerudin had closed their warrens, the only one who had a warren open was who? Uh, Jagat possessed. That's right. That's right. But how Hedge knew this? Like I don't know if they knew. Like how how would he have possibly known? Or is this just a whim? He's just like I'm just gonna fucking blow shit up. That I don't know. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely it, it's definitely a very chaotic section, you know. And I think it takes you a couple of times to kind of understand what it is that's happening and everything that has led up to this particular section, because. I feel like this is kind of the culmination 
And part of me is a little disappointed that he's potentially dead because Rayist Rayist uh was literally just awakened like three weeks like three chapters ago. Yeah. But also this yeah, is kind of long. bringing me back to when Paran disappeared and he's in this like, you know, extra dimension fighting fighting the uh finnist is i think that he was able to weaken the finnist enough to where the azath was able to imprison it so to speak or cage it right and the azath now has control over the finnist and the azath is the one that like grabbed or used its tendril type magic to grab the Jaghut possessed and imprison it or kill it. It's kind of like how I'm making sense of everything, whether that's right or not. I'm, I guess I'm not too sure, but I'm wondering now that we've done these summaries, how much more sense it'll make when I just reread the chapter real quick, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, you know, I haven't, I don't think I've read a chapter after we've summarized it. We've done it once. And I think it was at the very beginning. I think it was like the second chapter because I didn't, everything was so confusing back then, you know, because you just started a book and he he just throws you in it. Yeah. Just tossed right in. Yeah. But I guess my, my, my big question here is what happened to Mammoth? Yeah. I, I agree. That's kind of my question too. Is he just kind of seems that way? Is he gone? But it, it's. I mean, not. I don't know how that's survivable. But also, talk the younger, right? Like, where's he been? Apparently, he's dead. But he kind of went out in a similar. Not he didn't go out in a similar fashion, but the fact that there wasn't any type of conclusion to it is similar to this situation. You know, like there isn't, no one's talking about Mamet at this moment. No one's mourning or grieving him. Granted things just happened, but still like nobody is. Yeah. The dust hasn't even settled yet. Like literally. Preoccupied with Jerugistan being blown up because they realize that's not water pipes. It's gas pipes. Or that there's at least gas pipes present. Yeah, some of them are water, but yeah, exactly. You're 100% right. And that will fuck some shit up for sure. But yeah, Warren's draw the explosive force. I just, I'm still curious as to like what this Azath thing is. Like, that's probably the one thing that's got me so chasing my tail here. I mean, we're running out of pages in this book to, you know, have a whole lot be opened up, but I, I'm sure we'll get more because we, like I said, we don't have many pages and even that, uh, that religious figure, I can't remember the name, you know, that was brought up before. Like we haven't heard anything more about that. The Panion Seer. Oh, there you go. Yes. Like. I can't, it's probably not going to play a major role, but is he going to be brought up again? I've been thinking about that as we get towards the end of the book. I doubt that he'll get brought up 
in this book, but I think that again, I mean, it's it's the first book in a series of ten, so I can only assume that the story continues either in Dead House Gates or another book, you know? Right. I mean, like to think about it, like this is just the beginning, but to feel like so much has happened and transpired in this book, like you almost kind of feel like it's complete or that it's coming to a resolve. But in reality, that's not the case at all. Like you still have nine more books to read. Yeah. The door is just opening. I mean, unless they're, you know, 10 different stories with, you know, characters making a cameo but i i don't i don't believe that to be the case i don't think that that's how this will work i do think it is a continuous story yeah i'm sure we're gonna we're obviously gonna get like new characters along the way oh absolutely yeah i'm excited to read on because yeah we have this chapter and then we have one more chapter after that and then we've got our epilogue so and this next chapter is like 15 pages Oh, that's it. I haven't. I hadn't looked that far. Yep, it's like fifteen pages, and then I think the chapter after that is like ten. So, and the epilogue is maybe a page or two, three pages. So, yeah, I think our our epilogue episode, we could. Uh, do that and then have our guests guests come on not as a separate episode no i think we should just be able to do it all at once you know have the epilogue and then like all four of us can kind of talk about just lead i just see it leading into us talking about the you know the podcast and the book and sharing some ideas some things that were terribly wrong on our parts and Etc. Etc. Yeah, I think that'll be a good time. We'll have a lot of fun. That will be fun. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. And the fact to say that, like, you and I, we did our due diligence, sir. We we're 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 right there. It's like on the tip of our tongue. We're right there. Two episodes left. Well, three technically. Episodes left of Gardens of the Moon, and we can put this book to bed and move on to the next one which is exhilarating to think about yeah it's it's like the impatience is real and the payoff is uh in my opinion worth it as slow as it went like it's totally worth it yeah it's been a good time it's been worth it and i wouldn't change it me neither but I guess um, before we bid adieu, did you have any final thoughts for either this section or this chapter? Do you think uh, the city's going to be leveled? No, I think that they're going to save the day. I mean, if they did, ooh, ooh, this is dark. I'm warning you. It's kind of dark. But what All if right. they don't save the city? Then they don't have to worry about taking over. Like, Dujek can just stroll in. He doesn't have to save anything. He could just have the city. It's his for the taking. Because there's no one there to oppose him. 
but what are you going to do with a, a city that's destroyed and there's suddenly 300,000 less people around? You know, make do with what you got. <laughs> you can be king of a pile of rubble. <laughs> or rebuild it. True. You know? I mean, I'm assuming not every... I mean, they didn't plant mines throughout the whole city. They just planted at every major intersection. So... There's some yeah, but gas people... explosions usually do pretty good damage. I guess I don't have any experience I... as a saboteur. <laughs> yeah, that, and you're right. I don't either. But like, yeah, usually a gas. Like, I mean, they pre- they don't have to plant through the whole city. I mean, if the line blows, it's just gonna blow back through the whole line. Yeah, that's true. Well, then you are right. Dujek's gonna come to a city that yeah. So no, that that won't work. That won't work for our characters. They have to stop it. And they, yeah, either that or they got to leave like yesterday to get the hell out. Right. Yep. Because they're going to go down with it. You know, it was really weird to say Hairlock. It was really weird to say his name. Why is that? Just because he hasn't been a prominent character in these episodes for a while now. Yeah, he, he has not appeared in a bit. Well, he's dead. Fucking hounds destroyed him. Oh, that, yeah. True. So he's not going nowhere, is he? No, he's done. He's a pilot. That's all right. I didn't didn't like him. Yeah, he was an asshole. He was an asshole puppet. He was. But I suppose as far as this, uh, this podcast goes, I think we should wrap her up. I think we've covered about everything i I think think i mean if we if we left anything on the table i don't think it was much no not very much maybe some small little details here and there but what those are i don't know (laughs) well we'll soldier on to the next chapter here hell yeah well cool dude well enjoy the rest of your evening yes you do the same sir and we will we will talk soon Thanks, everybody. Take care, y'all. Until next time.